Well, good morning. Although, uh, since I'm fresh back from Israel, I should say it in Hebrew, Boker Tov. Yeah, you could go ahead, say Boker Tov. You've now spoken Hebrew in church this morning. And Shalom from the land of Israel. A, a group of us had another great experience of God there again this year. If you are interested in joining us in Israel one day, we'll go about the same time again next year, Lord willing. And uh, we'd love to have you. I'll have uh, more specifics on that trip later this year. And as good as Israel was, you know, it really is true that it's even better to be back. I, uh, I missed you guys. And, uh, well, thank you. One person missed me. <laughs> and I'm, <laughs> I'm more excited than ever to uh, continue sharing in God's Word together. Today, we start a new sermon series called God in the Movies, where for the next five weeks, we'll take a look at five different movies and see whether there's anything about God and His kingdom in there. This uh, really continues the same series we started last year under the same name, God in the Movies, and it's one of my favorite summer topics especially as people spend even more time at the movies, and it's a topic you all seem to enjoy as well, at least you did last year. So why are we looking for God in the movies of all places? Two reasons, I think, that it's a worthy endeavor. The first reason is about us, and the second is about others. First, the us reason is that we look for God in the movies because all truth is God's truth, and we can benefit from seeing it presented in such a compelling way as part of a story with all of that amazing creative ability of those who make movies. We have God's truth in the Bible, of course, and God's truth in each one of us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Those are two excellent sources of truth, the best two, I would say, without hesitation. But because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, including people who don't yet know God but are nevertheless made in His image, as all people are, God's truth can be found and is found in and through all creation, even in such places as the movies. I came across a quote this week that I think says it very nicely, making the point that we can even find God's truth, in bits and pieces at least, even in other religions. Have you ever thought of that? This author notes the God who made the world, the God who revealed himself in Christ, has not left himself without witness in the world. Every good thought, every gleam of light, every word of truth to be found in any religion and in atheistic philosophy like Marxism as well is part of God's self-disclosure. All truth is God's truth. And all truth has its focus in the one who became incarnate. So Christians welcome truth wherever it is found. As you look into other faiths, you will find an enormous amount that is true and worthy, that is moral and good, as well as much that is not. 
but you will not find anything that is good and true which cannot be found in Christ. The Apostle Paul echoes this sentiment when he writes, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever, you get the idea of what he's emphasizing, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, he writes, think about such things. Paul, too, recognizes that all truth, wherever it might be found, is indeed God's truth. So if there is truth illustrated or to be found in movies, we should check it out. Our world is soaked in the presence of God. And it's a delight, really, to discover the echoes of that presence, his truth throughout his amazing creation. A second reason we look for God in the movies has to do with others. Because people, regardless of where they stand before the Lord at present, just love movies. Our culture is fascinated with them. Americans spent over $10 billion on movies at the theater last year alone, and as much as double that in the rental and retail market on movies. People love movies. And people love to talk about what they love. And as followers of God, we love God, and so we love to talk about God, as least we should. And my thought is, if People love to talk about movies, and we love to talk about God, and God's truth is there in the movies. Well, this gives us an opportunity culturally to connect some dots for people between God in the movies and God himself. Movies give us talking points with people who are fascinated with movies. We take something people are interested in, like the movies, and we use it to point people to the one and only God behind all of the good things there. And even the wrong things in movies that point in a different direction from God, well, even they give us an opportunity to correct them. This is a whole lot like the Apostle Paul, who on several occasions, did you know, quotes famous plays or poets of the Greek world to help point people to God. And Paul, who even uses an altar to an unknown God as an opportunity to talk about the God he knew and that we all know. I think movies today can be used in much the same way as that altar to the unknown God in Athens in Paul's day. One author includes this thought. It's, it is crucial, he writes, that we communicate to the world around us and to our children that Christians are not people who are running scared of the world or ostrich-like hiding our heads in the sand, but instead have a valid viewpoint on any and every subject. We live in our Father's world, and we are unafraid. So let's take a fearless look for God in the movies, shall we? For our sake and for the sake of others who are interested in the movies, And perhaps with our voice added to that conversation, someone's interest in God will be ignited or deepened. The movie for us today is The Adjustment Bureau. 
There are, I don't know, how many of you have seen the Adjustment Bureau? Okay, a few of you have. There are many talking points in this film for wondering about God and his people. Chief among them, that theological puzzle of how God's absolute sovereignty and control nevertheless embraces human free will. And to get us started each week in our series, John Burns and Amanda Cook teamed up again this year to bring us their amazing summaries of the movies we're looking at in the series. So here is Burns and Cook to introduce the Adjustment Bureau. Let's watch. Here's everything you need to know about the Adjustment Bureau in five minutes, 33 seconds. David Norris is a young, up-and-coming politician. Achieving success with his good looks and honesty as the best policy platform, he's a shoe-in to win a seat in the U.S. Senate. That is, until damaging photographs, having nothing to do with Twitter, of a college prank surface. The night of the vote, four men in anachronistic fedoras and suits ominously prepare for the evening's work. We don't know who they are or what they're doing, and it doesn't get clearer anytime soon. Realizing he's lost the race, David takes a breather in the men's restroom to work on his concession speech. There he runs into the very beautiful and vaguely British Elise Sellis. Conversation ensues, and it seems as though the story of how David and Elise met will be one that they tell their grandchildren. But they are interrupted, and Elise runs away with security in pursuit. David is ushered in front of a crowd to deliver his concession speech. But he goes off script, making a pronounced return to his honesty as the best policy approach, revealing the extent to which his campaign has been meticulously planned. If you want to get a working man's vote, you need to scuff up your shoes a little bit. Do you know we actually paid a consultant $7,300 to tell us that this is the perfect amount of scuffing? It's a hit. It rockets him back into the headlines. It's a new day. The men in fedoras show up again. They reveal their malevolent plan. He has to spill his coffee on his shirt by 7.05. 7.05 at the latest. I'll get him as soon as he enters the park. But the agent of coffee spilling is tired. He sleeps through his 7.05 deadline. Coffee is not spilled. The unthinkable happens. David runs into Elise again. This time, he does not leave empty-handed. That's my number. Terrific, thank you. I'll call you. The morning after the election, I woke up thinking about you. Meanwhile, the agent of coffee spilling is hit by a taxi while chasing David's bus. He checks his book, which seems to be tracking David along a map of the city. From this point, things get weird. David arrives at work. Time in the office building is apparently frozen. People in black hazmat suits are vacuuming the people frozen in time. David wasn't supposed to see all this. We know this because the suited men start chasing him through the building. Grab him. Eventually, David ends up unconscious in a concrete hall that resembles a parking garage. He wakes and tries to escape, but he's stopped. It's like Men in Black meets The Matrix meets Google Maps. The men in fedoras explain everything to David. You've just seen behind a curtain that you weren't even supposed to know existed. Your path through the world this morning was supposed to have been adjusted. You were supposed to spill your coffee as you entered the park this morning. We call that an adjustment. Sometimes when people spill their coffee, or their internet goes out, or, or they misplace their keys, they think it's chance. And sometimes it is. Sometimes it's us. The men in fedoras politely ask David not to reveal their existence to anyone. If you ever reveal our existence, 
will erase your brain. They also make a request. You, uh, you bumped into a woman this morning on the bus, Elise. What, what does that have to do with anything? Well, you weren't ever supposed to see her again. <laughs> what is it? What, I mean, what does that matter? Because it matters. They remove Elise's number from David's wallet and gently return him to his life. Three years pass. David all but forgets about Elise until one day when he sees her walking down the street. He catches up to her. She's annoyed he never called her. He tries to convince her that it was not his fault. The men in Fedora's need someone new to break up the romance. They call in Thompson. Thompson finally explains to David why he cannot be with Elise. David, you can change the world, but that doesn't happen if you stay with her. Thompson has one more warning for David. If you stay with her, it not only kills your dreams, it kills hers. David succumbs to the agent's pressure and abandons Elise. Time passes. The agent of coffee spilling asks David to meet with him. He tells him the truth about Elise. Thompson was lying. Then why? Why do they care so much? Because she's enough, David. If you have her, you won't need to fill that void inside of you with applause and votes and dreams of one day making it to the White House. David and the agent concoct a plan to reunite David with Elise. David reaches Elise just before she marries another man. The agents are now coming for David. David and Elise begin running from the agents. They find themselves cornered on a rooftop. There they confess their love to one another and kiss one last time as the men in black hazmat suits prepare to reset David's brain. Suddenly the agents disappear. The agent of coffee spilling shows up. He explains that there's been a change in plans. It says that this situation between the two of you is a serious deviation from the plan. So the chairman rewrote it. The agent of coffee spilling takes his hat away from David, and David and Elise live happily ever after, except that they now have a phobia-level fear of men in fedoras. John and Amanda to summarize every movie out there for me. Yeah. They do a great job. Save me a lot of time and money. <laughs> the Christian analogies in this movie are plain to see. Those men in their fedora hats we learn in the movie are sometimes called angels, they tell us. And their job is to see that the plan of the chairman is carried out in the world. The chairman, a, a clear reference to God. And that much is already more than enough to talk about in this movie. If we need talking points with people, there is a God. There are angels, and God does indeed have a plan. But the real intrigue, the real meat of this movie is that it digs into a much deeper question. That question of how God's sovereign plan works together with human free will. How does human free will play a role in God's sovereign plan? Jewish and Christian theologians have wrestled with that question for centuries. And it's a real puzzle how those two things work together. It's a puzzle because 
human reason pushes us to choose one over the other. Human reason suggests that you can't have both. Either something's predetermined or it's not. Either God is completely sovereign or human beings make real decisions with real impact on themselves and on others in the world. And human reason suggests that one has to ultimately give to the other. Something cannot be both predetermined and truly free. Human reason objects. Perhaps the poster child theologian for the role of God's absolute sovereignty is John Calvin, who emphasized such things as election and especially predestination affirming that God is in control of every last detail of life, even that detail of people's choices, even their choice of God, those choices really being God the Creator's choices ultimately since He made them. He's just that in control. Calvin's infamous theological counterpart is perhaps Jacobus Arminius, who emphasized that every person has a real and free choice to make, especially when it comes to faith in God. Their choice is not overshadowed or overwhelmed by a predetermining sovereign God, Arminius claimed. And the Adjustment Bureau jumps boldly into the middle of this debate, giving us a compelling story where, in fact, both God's sovereign plan and human free, w- free will are real and find a way to coexist. Now, I'm not sure the movie gets it exactly right, but it certainly offers a big helping of something and some things to think about and discuss, and it offers a possible solution, maybe even one that's more right than wrong, or maybe even one that points in a direction of where the completely correct answer comes from, even if it's not completely perfect. As you just saw and heard, our two heroes, David and Elise, fall in love because an angel who was supposed to prevent them from meeting fell asleep on the job. And according to the plan, they were not to fall in love. So what's going to give their love or the plan? That's really the plot of the movie in a nutshell. Their love or the plan. One particularly serious angel confronts David and tells him that the plan is the plan. And his love for Elise has to go because it's not part of the plan. I have another clip showing his explanation to David of of why the plan must and will prevail over David's seeming free will, as he calls it. Let's watch. Whatever happened to free will? We actually tried free will before. In 1910, we stepped back again. Within 50 years, you'd brought us World War I, the Depression, fascism, the Holocaust, and capped it off by bringing the entire planet to the brink of destruction 
in the Cuban Missile Crisis. At that point, a decision was taken to step back in again before you did something that even we couldn't fix. You don't have free will, David. You have the appearance of free will. You expect me to believe that? I make decisions every day. You have free will over which toothpaste you use or which beverage to order at lunch, but humanity just isn't mature enough to control the important things. So you handle the important things. Well, the last time I checked, the world's a pretty screwed up place. It's still here. If we'd left things in your hands, it wouldn't be. Tell me why I can't be with Elise. Because the last guy didn't know. Meeting Elise at the Wardorf three years ago wasn't chance. That was us. We knew she'd inspire you to give that speech. That speech that brought you back from the edge of oblivion and overnight made you the frontrunner in this coming election. Are you saying you want me to win the election? This one? And four more after it. And I'm not just talking about elections for Senate. You can matter, David really matter. But that doesn't happen if you stay with her. Why do you people care who I love? It's not about her. It's about you. What being with her does to you. Can't outrun your fate, David. I just disagree with you about what my fate is. I know what I feel for her. And it's not going to change. All I have are the choices that I make. And I choose her. Come with me. Whoa. Now that angel is obviously a Calvinist. <laughs> and I'm teasing a bit. I'm a huge admirer of Calvin. And that stereotype doesn't capture him, in my opinion. It's a straw man Calvinist, easy to tear down. But the emphasis on God's sovereignty and control over human free will is there, isn't it? The plan is the plan. And you can't make that choice, David, because it's not in the predetermined plan. But David and Elise are in love. So to make a much longer story short, with the help of a sympathetic angel, they make a mad dash to see and appeal to the chairman himself before the other angels can get them and erase their brains. Not a desirable thing, you see, to have your brain erased. And so they make a mad dash through the city, getting secret access to secret places by using an angel's fedora hat. Those hats allow secret access. A really cool picture of God empowering his angels but limiting their power as well, by the way. And just when you think the madly in love couple might actually get to see the chairman themselves, the angels corner them on that rooftop you saw at the end of the Burns and Cook summary video. And as they are about to have their brains reset to get everything back on plan, the other sympathetic angel shows up and he has a surprise note from the chairman himself. You've already seen a bit of that scene, but here it is again in more complete form. Let's watch. Did you really think you could reach the chairman and change your fate if you did, or write your own? It doesn't work like that, and I told you why. 
I've got a message for you. I understand. David, you risked everything for Elise. And Elise, when you came through that door at the Statue of Liberty, you risked everything too. But you inspired me. Seems like you inspired the chairman too. Is that about us? Yes. What does it say? Well, it says that this situation between the two of you is a serious deviation from the plan. So the chairman rewrote it. life on the path we set for them, too afraid to explore any other. But once in a while, people like you come along who knock down all the obstacles we put in your way. People who realize free will is a gift you'll never know how to use until you fight for it. I think that's the chairman's real plan, that maybe one day we won't write the plan. You will. God changes the plan to accommodate their love-driven driven free choice of each other. Their free choice becomes part of the plan. Oh, how fascinating. And true, does it work that way? I don't know, but it offers an intriguing answer to such things as how in the world does Moses change God's mind, the Bible says, after God tells him he's going to wipe out the children of Israel, for example. It offers an intriguing possibility as to how God's sovereignty and free will work together. At, at the very least, it invites healthy, healthy thought and discussion on it, it seems to me. Fascinating. There is a part of the body of Christ out there that suggests that God leaves open many different possibilities for our future, individually and collectively. And, and the one future that becomes part of his plan depends on free choices, truly free choices that people make. This theory is called open theism. One of its modern-day champions is author Greg Boyd, a, a brother in Christ with an amazing mind, no doubt. Boyd suggests that God is big enough, powerful enough to carry out his plan with that myriad of real possibilities dependent on real free choice. Interesting opinion. Although to some it, it presses against and diminishes God's omniscience, God knowing the future in every detail right now, and those critics of open theism have a point, it seems to me. Interesting debate there. I, 
I'm not sure who is correct on that, but it's interesting to think about. The Adjustment Bureau leans toward that open theist look at the future. The angels in the movie all carry around this book, God's plan, and its pages are alive and moving, and there's a line in the page from top to bottom that represents where the people are right now, and then ahead of that line in the future, it includes all sorts of possibilities, with the angel being assigned to help steer people toward preferred choices and away from choices that threaten the overall plan. It's an interesting take. And I'll add to that one thought more. As we recently studied, Jesus, although fully God, according to Philippians, decided not to take advantage of being divine. Instead, humbling himself to live as a real human being. And Jesus also says that to see him and to know him is to see and know the Father. And I wonder, do you suppose that although God knows in infinite detail what each and every future choice will in fact be, he, like Jesus, chooses not to go there when relating to people in our right now. So while he knows that we'll choose what we'll choose, he chooses not to know it right now. So to him and us in the relationship right now, it's a truly free choice in that way, not fully realized by God until we choose it. By his choice, not fully realized until we choose it. I know, makes your head hurt to think about such things. But interesting possibility, at least, how God's sovereignty and human free will does, in fact, coexist, each in full measure. Now, I'm not at all sure that the Adjustment Bureau or open theism or Calvinism or Arminianism or any ism, whether any of them gets it all right, I suspect they all have something right even though human reason wants us to pick one. Ultimately, that's where I stand on the puzzle of God's absolute sovereignty and human free will. The Bible affirms both, so I will continue to affirm both, even though I can't completely explain how they both can work together without one overwhelming the other, or at least taking priority over the other. But you know what? I can't explain completely how Jesus' humanity and divinity work together either without one overwhelming the other, yet I know they do. And I can't explain how God's justice and mercy work together with one ultimately not prevailing over the other, but I know they both do. So I would caution all of us to be careful in coming to conclusions on such issues simply because we can't understand fully how two seemingly contrary things can work perfectly together. I think the best answer on such occasions, the best answer of all, even as we strive to understand, the best answer of all may be to fall even harder on our knees in praise and admiration for the one who does fully understand it, even when we can't, because we're not God, believe it or not. If we insist on 
full understanding before we believe? Haven't we made our understanding an idol? How is that any different than Thomas who insists on seeing the scars on Jesus' hands and feet before he believes in the resurrection. In this age of science and reason, we need to be particularly careful, in my opinion, that we don't make human reason a god. We need to be humble enough to leave open the very real possibility, I'd say very real reality, that we just don't completely understand it all and trust in God with the rest, the God who is above human reason and not limited by it. If I have one critique of many theologians, this is it. They often go too far in nailing down the answer to the questions that the Bible seems to leave intentionally open to a debate. They find what they believe is the answer, many times explaining away or ignoring many scriptures that seem to point honestly in a different sort of answer than theirs. Oh, that's dangerous, in my opinion, and maybe even a little arrogant. Instead, if the Bible says God is completely sovereign over everything and human free will is really free, Shouldn't we strive as best we can to live in the light of both of those truths rather than feeling compelled to pick one? Balance, it seems to me, is the key in those areas. You take today's topic, for example. Lean too far toward God's absolute sovereignty. Make that the only lens through which you view truth, and we're ultimately robots. Lean too far toward human free will. And make that the only lens to which you view truth. And we're ultimately in charge and the author of our faith. Yes, there are things we can know for sure with clarity. We just finished a series on those things, the essentials of the faith. But on other matters, we need to hold our opinions more humbly, it seems to me. God is in complete control. He knows everything, Bible says. And humans have free will. That is truly free, Bible says. And so that's what I'll say too. And leave putting, the putting of those puzzle pieces together in perfect harmony ultimately to God. It's good to think about and to strive and to understand and to know. It keeps us in God's word, keeps us on our knees before the one who has all the answers, even the ones we can't yet fully fathom. The devil will try to use such debate among us to divide us or to drive us from God. He'll use our desire to be right to drive us apart from someone else. He'll use our desire to completely understand before we trust to drive us away from God. Maybe that's part of the reason why at least God in Isaiah says that he loves the humble and contrite spirit. Because the humble and contrite can more easily love God with all their heart and all their soul and all their might and love their neighbors as themselves, even when they don't fully understand it all. I'll end this morning with quickly listing three things where I thought the Adjustment Bureau fell far short of the truth. These are talking points, too. 
And then I'll end after that. One thing I especially loved about this movie, and then I'll let you go to prepare for the jamboree later today. Do your stretching exercises. Find your cowboy hat and make your desserts. First, a major weakness of this movie is the aloof, faraway nature of the chairman. He's unapproachable even. But we know to the contrary that our God is not only approachable, he pursues intimate relationship with us relentlessly, wants it directly with each and every one of us. And neither neither David nor Elise nor anyone other than the angels seem to relate directly to God. Second, the movie ignores the truth that there are fallen angels out there too. Demons, we call them, who are trying hard to mess up the plan of God. There's no mention of them in this movie at all. And in fact, it would have been a real easy thing to add to the script, right? A group of bad angels, fallen angels, trying to mess things up. They could have been part of the maladjustment bureau. (laughs) Maybe that's the sequel, the maladjustment bureau. Ooh. And the last thing I didn't like, there was no mention or even a hint of the sacrifice of Jesus, that sacrifice that makes it possible for us to cooperate with God in love and living out his plan. And and no mention of the Holy Spirit whose power enables us to partner with God and live out his plan. But Even these things can create an opportunity like the one I just took to explain to people what the truth really is on those sorts of things if they're interested in talking about this movie. Finally, one thing I loved in particular just melts my heart. I love the idea of love inspiring the angels and even inspiring God. Did you catch that in that last scene we just saw? I love that picture. When we risk it all for others in love, it moves angels and it even moves God. Our God who is love, the Bible says. Nothing moves him like our sacrificial love. Nothing. Our love of him and our love of him especially through our love of others. Such love especially when it means giving up ourselves for others. Just like Jesus. Our love actually moves and inspires God. I think that's a beautiful picture of a biblical truth. God is absolutely sovereign. And we make real choices that really matter and become a part of God's plan. All of that somehow. And all because God loves us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are indeed good, as we sang about earlier. And your sovereignty and your greatness is indeed beyond our comprehension. As we strive to know you more and strive to love you more, yes, with our minds, help us, Father, not to let 
our minds get in the way of community with you or with each other. Give us that faith that Jesus commends, the belief and trust even when we don't see it in complete detail to our content. Help us, Father. May Give us opportunities to engage people in our culture through this thing or other things that they're fascinated with. Help us, like the Apostle Paul, to be able to point to the good and the truth in them and in turn point it to you, the author of every good thing. Father, we love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand, please, for the benediction this morning? It comes from Philippians. And it's where Paul says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy. Think about such things. And may the peace of God be with you all. In Jesus' name, all God's people said. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. We'll see you next week.